0: Well, if you'd open your scriptures today to First Peter, uh, we actually are starting a new chapter in First Peter. Uh, you know, proof positive, we're moving forward. Somebody yells out at a snail's pace. Well, yeah, but we're moving forward, making progress. Today, we begin chapter 3 of First Peter, and I'm going to read seven verses in this chapter, even though... This comes no surprise to you, we won't get through all of those seven, but they're all connected together in a way I want to read them so that you see that context developing in our study today. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. "'Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives.'" when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, (coughs) with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him the Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. And likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can spend some time in your word. Thank you that in your mercy and love for us, you've made your word available to us. All those that have gone before that you've used to take what you have breathed out and put it into a form that we can read. Thank you for all of that. And in this time we have today, through the working of your Holy Spirit, would you illumine our hearts that we might understand better what you took the time to say. Understand why you've said it. Be open to the clarity it provides for us in terms of change in our thoughts, in our actions, and encouragement in our faith. Well, thank you as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 2, the bulk of chapter 2, leading on now into the third chapter... Has been focused on a broad, overarching theme, and it has been this: God has called us as redeemed children of God to be living counterculturally. Everything that we've looked at in those chap, in that chapter, in those verses, fit under that umbrella. God never intended His redeemed children to fit in to where He has sovereignly placed them. Now, there's a certain irony in that God sovereignly placed us where He did left us in this world to, as, as the scripture puts it there, as sojourners. <laughs> He's left us here, exiles. He has a purpose for putting us where he wants us, but part of his purpose is not that we would conform to where he placed us. <laughs> part of his purpose is that we would be a light in the darkness in every place that he has sent us to be. He does not want us to fit into the world. He wants us to live in the world, but not fit in. Romans 12, 2. be not conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And to this point, to chapter 2, and had covered six critical culture contrasts that God wants to see in his redeemed children. We were commanded to abstain from the passions of the flesh, not be people driven by urges. He says we were commanded to conduct ourselves honorably and focus in on good deeds, not only concerned with what we what we don't do, but also concerned with what we should do. And both of those pieces are part of this countercultural picture. We were commanded to be subject to the governing authorities and talked a lot about that. We taught that we were also commanded to show honor and respect to all people. We were then commanded and challenged as God's redeemed children to be subject within the work context. To be subject to those who have leadership roles and, uh, well, leadership roles within the work world. And last time, we finished chapter 2 by examining the challenge, the sixth of these countercultural pictures, that we were commanded to approach unjust treatment differently. We were to be people who endured unjust treatment. uh, And we talked all about what that means. Now, today, in verse. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, God turns our attention to yet another of the cultural contrasts. We've seen the six. Now here's number seven. He says, listen, I want you to contrast with the world, no matter where I've placed you in it, I want you to contrast with that world in the way that you live in your marriage. I want you to follow a biblical pattern, In your marriage as my redeemed children. And God essentially is saying, I guarantee you that if you do that, you will stand out like light in the darkness, like a sore thumb, as some people put it. You would stand out because you're approaching marriage in a way different than the way that the world approaches it. We know as redeemed children of God who have God's word, we know God's the one who created marriage. He is the one that initiated it, put it in place. And by the way, he put it in place even before any sin. It was while still in the garden before any sin that God said, it's not good that a man be alone, and he puts together the marriage as a covenant of companionship and so forth. Well, at any rate, we know God created marriage. He knows how it's supposed to function. He knows, because he's the creator of it, what it should look like and what it shouldn't look like. All right, that's a given. I don't hope I don't have to argue that with anybody here. God knows that, and he's the one that set those patterns up. He defines what marriage is supposed to look like, not just here in 1 Peter 3, uh, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, and we could go on and on. He addresses marriage a lot of places, and to truly understand really what a Christian marriage is in its totality, we need to integrate all of those passages, which I'm not going to do as we're working through First Peter. But I do want to alert you to the fact that he speaks to the issue of marriage more than in First Peter chapter 3. He gives us in First Peter chapter 3 guidelines on how he wants redeemed wives to behave and to respond to the marriage. And he gives guidelines on how he wants redeemed husbands to respond to the marriage. Now, let's build on it. Here's a reminder. When it comes to marriage, the culture's view, the worldview surrounding us, essentially will reject every core principle of God's teachings, about marriage. Sometimes they will reject it in very sort of subtle ways without head-on disputing it, but in practice, they might just as well of because the patterns that they advocate are in contrast to God's pattern. Sometimes they'll dispute it head-on, like in a big crisis collision. Whichever form it takes, the fact of the matter is no believer has ever been in a culture that supports what God says about marriage, at least not in its totality. Now, that puts you in good company, puts me in good company. Everybody's going to be living, if they want to please the Lord, counterculturally in these things. By the way, there's another implication of all of this the world in general, in relationship to God's Word, rejects it out of hand unless they happen to want to do something independent of God's word, and then they look for a proof text somewhere that might make it appear like, well, I'm doing the right thing. But in general, the world doesn't like what God has to say. Uh, They don't want to follow what God has to say. That's the case. Who of us living in this world could have a different experience if we're talking with people who don't know Christ than that they're not really happy about what God's word has to say about the things if we have a chance to talk about it. Not just marriage, anything. And it comes to marriage, one of the implications of this is that we shouldn't expect that the world's professionals would affirm propositional revelation from God. Or put it a different way. The world's professionals will seldom align with what God commands and teaches principle-wise. About marriage. They'll be sophisticated sometimes in how they don't affirm it. Sometimes not so sophisticated. But that will be the case. So we ought never be surprised by that. It's like I read something that somebody has written who makes no profession of the faith in the Lord, no profession of belief in the scriptures, and they write something about marriage, and it doesn't agree with God's word, and and I'm shocked. It's like... (laughs) Well, what do you expect? You know that They're coming from a whole different framework. Their understanding of the purpose of marriage is entirely different from God's. Of course they're not going to come out at the same place, or at least often not at the same place. You know, you can end up in the same place for entirely different reasons. And so sometimes people will do what God says, but not because God says it. Just they've got another agenda unfolding for which this happens to fit. So anyway, let's not ever be surprised when the professionals who are supposed to know don't know. Uh, Or, we should never be surprised when we find people are not happy with what God has to say in general, even if they're not, quote, professionals. They just don't like it. In fact, you and I, in 2023, live in a culture that goes even further. We live in a culture where openly, people have always, to some degree, said it subtly and under the surface. But now, openly, people say, if you follow what the Bible says about marriage, you're going to be unhealthy and oppressed. In fact, those words come up frequently in the literature. What God's Word says, they wouldn't say God's Word. say what that, what that Bible says here and here and here, unhealthy, oppressive, it's going to curtail human development, it's going to curtail what should be happening with marriages. And the result of that is a lot of antagonism toward the scripture, and antagonism toward anybody who wants to hold to it. Because in holding to it, that puts you in the same category, as saying something I'm not happy about. And I feel guilty, I feel more guilty when you say it, I'm always going to feel guilty underneath, but I'm going to feel more guilty when you say it, when you stand on it. Well, the Bible goes to great lengths, not just on the issue of marriage, but other things, to say what is wisdom in the world is foolishness to God. And what is wisdom from God is perceived often as foolishness to the world. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians three nineteen and 20. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Remember sitting down in the years at the university, after you spend some years there and you have some colleagues and some degree of transparency develops, I sitting down with a colleague who was world-respected, world world-renowned, probably one of the top two or three in, his, in the world in his field. And we were having coffee one time, and, and he made the comment to me, I know a lot about this, but I don't know about life. don't know about life. He gave me a great opening. And, uh, and, and that particular person came to know Christ. But uh, that's the reality. You could have all of the wisdom in his comment, God's comment, that they are futile. It only leads to futility. Book of Ecclesiastes tells us that. You could, you could have great wisdom, try to find your answers that way, and you come to the end of it and you say, well, this was all vanity, this was all meaningless, this was all futile. <laughs> that is the reality. I was thinking of Ephesians 4:17 and 18 in this regard, too. Now, this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk like the Gentiles do. How's that? In the futility of their minds. That's the picture. You start with your own thinking, and then you try to construct some sort of understanding of life and some sort of understanding of what's right, coming out of your own thoughts. Human beings do a terrible job of that. Uh, everything they come up with ultimately becomes futile. He goes on in verse 18 of Ephesians 4, he says, they're darkened in their understanding. They're actually alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. Not a very complimentary picture of humanity, but an accurate one, isn't it? I mean, that's the truth of it. And we know it's true, not because we're looking on at other people. We know it's true because we look at ourselves in the mirror. I mean, we we all face that pressure to adopt worldviews and perspectives that are rooted in human ideas, not God's revelation. And uh, so that's that's the picture. What wisdom do you want to build your life around? And for those going into marriage, what wisdom do you want to build a marriage around? I mean, there's a lot of wisdom options, quote. There's God's wisdom, and then a bunch of others. God says all of those others are futile, ultimately. They're rooted in darkened understandings. Not bad motives, just darkened understandings. They just don't know, because they've not accepted what God has to say. Well, at any rate... Moving on, 1 Peter chapter 3, in verses 1 to 7, God gives some very clear statements about marriage to the husband and the wife. Begins by talking about the wife and then eventually turns to the husband. Uh, We're going to keep working our way through it. I make no promise of how long it will take us to get through it, but we're going to keep hitting them head on. What is God taking the time to say and why is he saying it? And we'll look at those things together. He highlights, first of all, as I read these verses to you, the Christian wife. And he says five overarching issues to the Christian wife. And they are these. I want you to be subject to your husband in the home. I want you to be respectful and pure in your conduct. I want you not to be preoccupied with your physical appearance. I want you to prioritize in your life your inner spiritual development, in fact he goes so far as to say that's what makes you precious in my eyes and finally he says as a Christian wife I don't want you to fear to follow God's design when everyone around you is attacking it and that as we'll come to it is critically important for us because quite frankly everybody around you attacks it in one way or another they attack it and that's a reason to have a little fear out, isn't it? It's like, can they all be wrong? And God's answer is, yeah, yeah, they're all they're all wrong because they're starting in a place they couldn't possibly end up being right because they're starting with their own thoughts. And they're not starting with revelation from the God who created us. And therefore, yeah, they, they can be wrong, even when all of them agree on what they think is right but is really wrong. And that can make it kind of make us apprehensive about acting on it. Well, that's where we're going. That's where, however long it takes, that's where we're headed. So let's start with the first of these. We'll focus on this one. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. He says, okay, let's start here. A Christian wife is to be subject to her husband's authority in the context of the home. She says, likewise, wives. King James Version translates it in the same manner. Well, what's that talking about? Why, what's this likewise all about? He's referring you back to chapter 2. He's talked to us in chapter 2 about the importance of people being subject to the civil authorities... He talks in chapter 2 about employees being subject to employers. And now he says, like that, in the same way, I'm calling for the wife to be subject to the husband in the context of the home. He's helping us to understand there's a connectedness from chapter 2 into chapter 3 in this regard. Hey, by the way, Ephesians five twenty one starts out by saying, Husbands and wives be subject to one another. So no person who's redeemed has any right to approach marriage in anything other than a, self, a selfless manner. This is, nobody has the position of privilege and power, but they have differing responsibilities. The husband carries out a submissive spirit in the framework of leadership, as we'll come to see. The wife carries it out in the context of how she supports that leadership. But both have to be that way. So the word subject is used in both cases. In this case, the word be subject to your husbands is that Greek word hupotasso, same word that was used back having to do with government and having to do with the work world. Here's the thing about this word. The Greek word hupotasso has no exact English equivalent. Sometimes that happens from language to language. There's th- there'll be a word in a language for which there's not an exact equivalent in another language. And so in order to understand what's meant by that word, you come up, you're, you're faced with a translation issue. What word gets close? Sometimes you solve that by not translating it by a single word, but by translating a particular word with several words, so that the several words together get closer to what that single word meant in another language. That's not just true of the scriptures. That's true of any kind of linguistics. Uh, good thing to ask uh, when Chris and, and Liz are back here and all of the translation work that they do, the scriptures, into the into those languages, you know, they face this all the time. Well, we're trying to take this passage, put in here. It's not an exact equivalent in this language for this word. And it's even doubly confusing because if they're using the English that's not what it was written in initially anyway. So the English word that was chosen is not an exact equivalent of the Greek word in this case. Or it could be Hebrew word too in the Old Testament. It's not an exact equivalent. So then you come to yet another language and you're saying, oh, what, what word in that language best captures this? Therein is the dilemma of translation work. Well, why do I develop that for you? Because since there's no... Single word in the English that adequately word idea for idea connotation for connotation reflects the Greek word hypotasso. You are inevitably going to misunderstand it if you think it only means one thing. When we gather the term subject or submit, depending on the translation, is then you're you're catching something but missing something. What do I mean by that? Well. I think you'll understand it if I develop this a little further. And this isn't a linguistics class, but I, I think to understand what's being said here, we have to understand this. Uh, the Greek word vitasso is really two words. Hupo, uh, meaning to be under, and tasso, which has to do with rank or organization. The Greeks used this word often in a military sense. And you can understand why, because you think of the military set up in its ranks, set up with its officers, the levels of authority. The the, the army worked to the degree that the lines of authority worked. People understood who was making what decisions, who was in charge where. And so Huppetasso described that. It means literally in the setting of organization to accept authority in the organization to respect and honor and obey authority in the organization and to adapt to those in authority within the organization. Now, when used with civil government, which is how it was being used back in the second chapter, you can see how all of that plays out. I mean, you're going into it and you're accepting the fact that society is an organization, Remember, civil government was instituted by God to hold sin in check after the flood. That was how civil society now bore the sword, and that kept some of the disaster of anarchy from continuing to pollute all of mankind. Didn't mean civil governments always did the right things, but what, even when they did the wrong things, it was usually less, vastly less disastrous than a world filled with anarchy and vengeance and so forth that was done with no kind of sword in anybody else's hand but our own. Uh, So God had a purpose for that. So there's a sense in which society is an organizational structure. You have leadership in it, and there's got to be lines of authority within it. So hupotasso means you're submitting to that reality, and you're submitting to leadership along the way. Uh, In the area of the work world, organization has the same idea there, because that's the second of the social systems that God creates in this world. The first one is the governmental structure. The other is the work structure, because within the work structure, unless you're self-employed, you've got you have a lines of authority. You've, the organization won't work unless there's hopitasso going on within the structure of it. The home is the third social structure of society. The government what has to do with how we earn our livings and what has to do with the home environment. Those are the social structures in broad strokes. I mean, there's nuances between them, but that's the broad stroke. And God says the hopitasso is going to be true in all of these. Now, one of the things that hupotasso, understanding the word, it doesn't mean that the one who's called upon to be subject is somehow unequal as we use that word equality it doesn't the Greeks never used that word to imply inequality the fact that you were subject to a civil authority didn't mean you didn't have didn't have equality it simply meant society won't work without that structure in the work world it didn't mean that because you weren't the boss you weren't equal you had a role within that structure and therefore you had to abide by it same way in the context of the home If we take hupotasso and and infer from that inequality, that would be the furthest thing from the Greek mind and therefore from God's mind in allowing the scriptures to come to us in propositional terms. Certainly it means it it has no sense of value in it. In other words, it's not like you have less value than somebody in government. That's the reason... And if you submit, that's what you're admitting I'm less valuable than the person in government, or less valuable than the person in the work context, or less valuable than the person in the home. No, that that had no idea, that wasn't even part of the conception. The issue is agreeing to foster the necessary order and structure that to some degree keeps the sinful world from corrupting you and the people that you love. That's what it's about. That's why the command is there. That's why God says, "As my children, I want you to cooperate with what I've put in place by common grace to try to keep some of the ravages of sin under control. This is the way, this is one of the ways it'll be done, being submissive to government, being submissive to uh, the work authority structure, and being submissive in the home. This is how it will control, how it will come under control. To be submissive to the husband in the context of a marriage says that the wife is supportive of his decisions and leadership in that social structure called the family. The wife is supportive of that. And she shows that by being willing to adapt, accommodate, cooperate with the leadership structure with the decision process. Not resenting it, not fighting it tooth and nail, not rejecting it at every point, uh, not being unwilling to do it unless somebody has a sword over her head. Think, that's, think back to the civil authority issue. God is, even though the, the culture has the sword, so to speak, in civil government, God's intention for his people isn't that the only time I'm going to obey is if there's a sword right over my head at that moment. The rest of the time, if you can't enforce it, I'm not going to do it. No, no. And so we come to the home, the same issue's there. I'm going to do it, not because there's a sword over my head, but because this is God's plan. This is necessary to do. Now, let me just briefly say something to husbands. A husband, I would hope, would have a desire to be wise not a fool. Just like I would hope a civil authority figure would have a desire to be wise and not a fool. Or a boss would have a desire to be wise and not a fool. Only a fool doesn't discuss with others issues that affect the whole thing. You know, Only a fool of a, of a ruler never has anybody they consult with, never, never interacts with people about a decision. They end up maybe having to make the decision, but ideally with some feedback from different places. Only a fool of an employer ignores whatever else may be going on, doesn't even ask any of the workers who are hands-on involved in it, what what do you think about this issue, here's this problem, get some feedback and then make a decision. And only a fool of a husband says, well, I never consult my wife on any issue, I never get her take on it. it, only confuses things. And therefore, I'm not even going to do that. So, while he doesn't say it here, the preface is, don't be a fool. So, uh, at the same time he's commanding a wife to be submissive, he's commanding a husband, don't be a fool. Or, another aspect of this would be, it it would be a fool of a man who refused to delegate anything. Just like it would be a fool of a civil authority to never delegate. In fact, we have classic examples in civics and, in, and even in history of people in leadership, civil leadership, who didn't delegate enough and they got buried under vastly more minutia than could possibly be addressed. And, and also because they never delegated, there was too much at, at their hands. Uh, in some of the consulting I've done with Christian organizations, that's the root of some of their problems. They don't delegate adequately, different things to be done, and so the people at the top burn out all the time because they're unwilling to delegate at other levels. In government, you delegate. In a business, you delegate. the The boss doesn't have to do has the boss doesn't have to be involved in every decision. They can decide these decisions. I've put into this group. This department takes care of that. They're answerable to me if they do a terrible job of it. But there's a delegation of authority. A wise husband who's not a fool understands that there's a lot of things in the day-to-day operation of the home that they can delegate. I mean, it would be foolish for them to have to have you know have it have it brought to their attention and then always make the decision about it. Uh, so, all social organizations, civil, work, home, uh, operate better in the context of uh, discussion, interaction. Uh, feedback and delegation, all of that works. So none of that is contrary to the meaning of the word "hupatasso." That's the reason I went into so much on it. So none of that's contrary to that Greek word. But it's very contrary to misunderstanding of the English word submit or be subject. Because that word can imply, if we don't understand it's not an exact equivalency of "hupatasso." it could imply that, that, uh, you know, somebody's this autocrat. But that's not what it means. It's not what it means. Clearly, God's plan in the social structure of the home is for the husband to have the final say. When a decision has to be made, a buck has to stop somewhere. And especially when there's differences of perspective. After everything's been weighed, somebody's got to make a decision. Sometimes the decision is to wait a while. And, and give it a little more time because it doesn't have to be made in a given day. But still, to make it work, whether it's government, whether it's work, whether it's the home, uh, somebody has to be where the buck stops. You know, where, okay, we disagree on this, disagree on that. What decision are you going to make? And once a decision's made, then your task becomes implementation because you've already offered the advice. You see that reality in work, you see that reality in government, you see that reality in the home, or should see it. Now, having said that, there's a condition clause in all of this. Well, what's that condition clause? It's the same. Remember this passage, verse verse 1 starts in chapter 3 by saying, Likewise, back in chapter 2, studying Hupatasso as it relates to government and as it relates to the work world, we saw that ultimately... The individual believer is under God's authority, not the civil authority and not the work authority. The highest authority for their life is God, not these other groups. Uh, It's submission, therefore, is always balanced by that reality. In chapter 2, it talks about living as people who are free not using that freedom as a cover-up for evil. In other words, as you submit, as you are subject to, do it as a free person. A free person says, I'm not a slave. I'm making decisions. I'm I'm under the authority, ultimately, of God, not the particular person in authority, whether they happen to be in the civil authority, whether they happen to be in the work authority, or whether they happen to be in the home authority. I, as a free person, am making a choice, To cooperate. Making a choice. Because I am a free person. Not a chattel. Not a slave. I'm making choices. To act in a certain way. To be supportive. Because God told me to. Now what's the implication of that? A husband can't force his wife to submit. That's what the implication is. There will be consequences if that is not done. But God doesn't say here by implication... and. Go beat your wife up if she won't, uh, if she won't listen to you. <laughs> no, the Bible doesn't say that. Husband can't force submission. But the wife needs to understand before the Lord, there's always consequences if you refuse to do what God clearly commands. But then it comes back and says, well, in the civil world and in the work world, sometimes those in authority could be commanding me or challenging me to do something contrary to what God says. Do I just go ahead and do what's contrary to God's, what God says because the person in authority told me to do it? And for the believer, your answer is never. Never. Because you're first and foremost responsible to the highest authority. God. As a free person, the wife is subject, first of all, to God. Not her husband. And God's authority always, let me repeat this, God's authority always overrules a husband's authority. Always. 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 Remember talking about religious authority in Acts four, where they were just commanding, "Don't don't proclaim the gospel." The response is, "Well, you got to you got to judge, but we can't help but do what God's commanded us to do. He's He's the one we surrender to first. You tell me not to witness about Christ." I'm a witness about Christ. There might be consequences, but I'm not going to obey that command. So that principle continues out. A wife is not to submit to a sinful decision. A decision to sin. Let me frame it that way. She may submit to a decision she doesn't think is the wisest and should. But we're talking about a sin issue. Oh, you mean there's spouses that might want you to do something sinful? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, open your eyes up. You've lived in the world a while. that, that, That can happen. And God says, no, you never do that. Never do that. Never do that. Because you're my child. You're my family. And if it's a civil authority that's commanding it, a work authority that's commanding it, or a home authority that's commanding it, you say no, because I serve the Lord. His commands are first. Not yours. By the way, not to surprise you that there's a tremendous amount of distorted and unbiblical teaching about such things out there. I've even had people say, and I've had to confront them in pastoral meetings, that, well, the wife just does what that husband says to do, and if it's it's sinful, God's not holding her accountable for it. He's holding the husband accountable. And my response to that is, what Bible did you read? Obviously not this one. God will hold the husband accountable if they choose to do sinful things. But you haven't gotten yourself off the hook of doing sinful things because you didn't have to be the authority figure. And somebody said, yeah, but I I heard this testimony one time where somebody said, you know, I did this, and then God worked good out of it. Anecdotal evidence is meaningless. You don't even know why God worked good out of something, and ultimately you don't even know if he did. The only thing you know, independent of circumstances, is this. It's not conditioned by your observations. It's not conditioned by your best analysis of what the outcome was of doing X or Y. This is propositional revelation from God, independent of context. And God makes no such promise. That he's great enough to work good out of bad? Sure. But I'm not to live in such a way that I says, I'll keep on doing what's bad because God's greater he's going to work good out of it. That's not how a Christian's supposed to work out their life. Well, but a wife has to be cautious. In this, just as a citizen has to be cautious, an employee has to be cautious because you remember back in the second chapter he says, "Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You know, this principle, which shows you who's really in charge, isn't to be this little gimmick you use. So if your husband says, I want you to do this, and it's not really sin, you say, well, no, you know, I, I, I'm not going to do that. You, know, you, could, you have to make sure you know that what's being said to do that you're not supposed to be submissive to is a sin thing. And you aren't going to know that without this, by the way, but uh, don't use it. Don't use it. Person, The wife who comes to me and says, well, the Holy Spirit kind of led me not to be obedient. I said, well, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of the enemy who led you not to be obedient. Because what you were being challenged to do wasn't an issue of sin. So uh, you've fallen prey already of the warning here. So whatever you were listening to, don't listen to it anymore. Spend the time you were trying to listen to this, quote, voice of the Spirit. And listen to the propositional scriptures as the Holy Spirit then will illumine your heart with it. That's what you listen to. Anything can end up finding anecdotal evidence for it. Isn't it wonderful we're not left with that? Because, brothers and sisters, for every anecdotal evidence somebody comes up with for some crazy idea they've got, there's existing anecdotal evidence that shows just the opposite. (laughs) Because that's the way life is. We need something much more stable than that to know what's true. Finally, he he concluded here, he says, this command, by the way, is not dependent on your husband being a believer any more than the command in terms of civil governments dependent on the government being the person in civil authority being a believer or the person in the work context being a believer. The command is not tied to that because it's situated outside of that issue. It's situated into the social system that God has created as a way of holding in check sin. Now, as a Christian wife, let's say she's with a person who doesn't know Christ, either because she unwisely married them, even though she was a believer, or she became a believer after having married the unbeliever, you say, well, why do you say that? Because God commands you not to marry an unbeliever if you are saved, but we don't always obey everything God says. So, and that's a situation, or maybe you weren't saved when you got married. Now you claim to know Christ, and now your circumstances—I'm married to someone who doesn't know Him. You know, that's that can happen. And He says, listen, understand that this orientation toward Hupatasso, to be subject, to be submitted. Uh, actually creates a witnessing tool for you. God will use it in the context of that home. Uh, So that even if some don't obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of the wife. A Christian wife can know that if I'm going to be subject, and I'm going to do that in every way except when it's having to do with a sin question, Uh, the truth of the gospel that I'm professing in my life, it'll make an impact in my unbelieving husband. It'll make an impact in others who are observing what's going on, too. Oh, I don't mean God is making us a promise here that your unbelieving husband will be saved because you act that way. That has been falsely taught. No biblical support for that. But there are times when that happens, And there's also times where a Christian wife, doing what God says to do, loving and acting in a way before God that's perfect and right, goes to her deathbed or her husband's deathbed with no sign of repentance in that spouse. Both happen. But the issue is, if I'm trying to say, what can I do that's best to increase the likelihood that an unbelieving spouse will consider the gospel? The answer to that is, live like God called you to live. That's the best thing you can do. It doesn't matter how many apologetic arguments you got. Uh, you hear, hear this, Not that you should never share an answer for the hope that's in you, but we're looking at more than apologetics. We're looking at confirmation of the reality of the truth of the gospel and the truth of relationship with God and that he's really in charge. And that will come out. Now, Other aspects of the wife's role, as it's defined in these verses, also has to do with this conduct that will impact on the husband. And Lord willing, we'll look at some of those as we gather again to see more about what is 1 Peter 3 telling us about how a wife is supposed to be and God's plan and how a husband is supposed to be. You remember I started out by saying what God said about the wife generally, is going to be seen as a foolish thing to be uh, by the culture around you. And the same will be true of the husband, by the way. You can come on up. Uh, But they think the gospel's foolish, don't they? And it offends them, too. So is it any surprise that other things that God has to say... They might view it as foolish and almost offensive. Of course, that's the nature of it. Life is a sojourner exile. Not an easy place to be, but God's grace is sufficient within the framework of the world he places us in. He has reasons for leaving us here, even though that world is one he doesn't want us conformed to. Mm-hmm. Anytime we study the word of God, it really comes down to Have thine own way or have my way? I mean, you get to the simple, that's what it is. Will I do what you want, the Lord? Will I do what I want? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful that you're God who has spoken. Thankful that in the confusion of our cultures, that you have a rock we can stand on. Truths that stand the test of eternity. Rooted in... What you understand and see is the Creator God, the Lord of the universe, not in the best that human beings can come up with. Help us to be at rest in the things you say. Help us to be committed to letting your way be our way, rather than, as Isaiah 53 puts it, people turning to their own way. May it be true, Lord. Guide us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.